Good morning again. Uh, for, for our guests today, you're, you're joining us while we're walking verse by verse through the book of Acts in the New Testament. Now, we're, we're learning kind of this mission that God has on planet Earth to build this thing that we call the church. And his mission to build what is called ecclesia, this, this movement, this gathering around a cause. The cause is the story of Jesus. It's the source of hope, the, the hope that has a name. And this movement has, has really just unfolded in different stories. And the story we've been in for the last several months is the story of a guy named Paul. Uh, his name's also Saul, but he's become this incredible leader in this movement of ecclesia. And last November, we were in Acts chapter number 19, and there's this statement made about the Apostle Paul and then by the Apostle Paul. Chapter 19, verse 21, Paul resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. The amazing thing about that one thought by the Apostle Paul is that's sort of the outline for this whole book of the Bible. The beginning of this book, Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. You're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're going to testify the story of Jesus in Jerusalem. And then in the region around that, Judea and Samaria. And then what we would call Rome, the ends of the earth. Rome was really kind of the center of the earth at this time in history. And so the Apostle Paul's really flowing in this, this exact same outline or plan that the Holy Spirit's given for this whole book. He's resolved. He's, he's determined the Holy Spirit wants him to go to Jerusalem. Specifically, since chapter 19, he's been trying to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. And he took a long time to say goodbye to his friends. It took us a couple weeks to get through Acts chapter 20, where maybe some of you have friends or family like that. You start saying goodbye an hour before you plan on actually leaving. You know what I'm talking about? If you don't know anybody like that in your life, it might be you. You might be that person. You know what I'm talking about? You're just like, well, and they don't get it. Like, if you're ever in someone's house and they stand up and go, well, that doesn't mean start a new story. Anyways, um, He's doing that, right? He's having this long, drawn-out farewell. And in that long, drawn-out farewell, he gave us a chance to see a glimpse of what healthy church culture looks like. And then we finally get this morning to Acts chapter 21. And we're going to look, God willing, we're going to get through chapter 21 and the first half of chapter 22 this morning. So please grab your Bible if you would. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. And uh, for our guests today, we have a tradition here. We hold up our Bibles and say a creed together before we jump in and a, a prayer together. If that's not where you're at in your spiritual journey, don't feel pressure uh, to join with us in that this morning. But for those of us that resonate with this declaration, I'm going to ask you to hold up your Bibles. And let's declare this with some conviction this morning. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind. And give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, it's page 875 if you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you. We're going to rush through some some scripture this morning, moving kind of quick. And so I'm going to challenge you before we even start to circle back tomorrow or or Tuesday maybe and and reread this chapter and the first half of chapter 22 uh, again just to slow down a little bit. The, the chapter starts off with giving a real quick GPS overview of this journey as the Apostle Paul is trying to get to Jerusalem. We pick it up in chapter four, or rather verse number four, I mean, of chapter 21. And he says, 
He's landed, by the way, here in Tyre. He says, having sought out the disciples, we stayed there in Tyre for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to do what he's been really determined to do, to go on to Jerusalem. What we're going to see real quick in the, the first half of this chapter is three groups of people have the same message for the Apostle Paul. Really, they have the same two messages. The, the heart of the message is don't go to Jerusalem. And notice that the Spirit of God is, is burdening them to say this to him. Don't go, don't go, don't go. The word for telling there is a verb tense in the original Greek language that means they were constantly over and over again telling. In every minute they were telling. If we were translating this into modern English, we would say they were nagging him. Right? Right? They're just telling him, don't go, don't go, don't go. By the way, don't go. Hey, for seven days, don't go. Don't, you don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go. They're constantly telling him this, right? And what's interesting is seven days came up and they left. Kept heading towards Jerusalem, had this big, long farewell. And they traveled to another town. They only stay there for one day. But pick up on verse number eight. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. Now we're going to have the second group of people. So the believers in Tyre are telling him, don't go, don't go, don't go, don't go. Now he lands in Caesarea. And check this out. Those of you who've been walking through Acts uh, with us for the last year, we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist. Do you remember Philip? He had that amazing experience with the guy from Ethiopia who was like trying to figure out uh, who the prophet Isaiah was talking about. This is that same guy. I think that's important to notice. Because we haven't seen him in the story for decades. And yet God's continuing to still use his life. And I just find that really comforting. I love the thought that God keeps working when we don't see it. I love the fact that God keeps growing people when we don't see it. One of the really difficult things, the longer I'm here, that I struggle with being at Temple, is we say so many goodbyes. We watch students that we've invested so much in, and they none of them go to college here. They all leave, man. Like, where are you going? It's like nobody stayed in town, man. And yet there's such great hope to know that when we commission our students to the next chapter of their story, God doesn't quit writing his story. He's still at work when we don't see it. It's a beautiful thing. God's still working here. He's one of the seven, the seven core leaders from that Jerusalem church. He's still being faithful. And anyways, that's what the Apostle Paul stayed with. Verse number nine is just really interesting to me. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Like he's four for four with prophetic giftings in his daughters, which just kind of tells me that he's not just being faithful to serve the church. He's leading well at home. How cool is that? Like that's the true mark of me. He might be called Philip the evangelist, but I think we should like booby trap that and call him Philip the dad. I just think that's awesome. Like, let's normalize raising kids who will keep serving Jesus. But that's not the part of the... T- uh, keep going. Verse 10, while we're staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus, what a cool name, came down from Judea. And this home slice is dramatic. Check this out. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. So I guess technically he said, Thus says, oh, he's, he's all tied up. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt. He's pretending like he doesn't know who he took the belt from. Whoever's belt this is, I don't know. 
and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Which when we read the Old Testament prophets, they did some pretty dramatic things, right? Like Ezekiel had to cook his food over human feces, right? Like at least he's not doing that. That's not a campfire I would like to be invited to, by the way. So again, they're all saying, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. It's going to be dangerous. Look, this dude tied himself up like a weirdo. Like this is, this is bad. So we've got the believers at Tyre and we've got the believers from Caesarea, even a prophet who's from out of town. And then this gets interesting. Verse number 12, when we heard this, now even his closest companions are doubling down. Luke himself gets involved. And we probably includes Silas at this point. We don't know who else we is, but we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. What we see here is a fundamental misunderstanding about the way of Jesus. Because they weren't just saying, don't go. They were saying, it's going to be difficult, so don't go. It's going to be painful. There's going to be a struggle. There's going to be opposition. So therefore, it must be the will of God that you avoid it. There's a fundamental misunderstanding that somehow the way of Jesus means life isn't hard. There's this fundamental misunderstanding that to follow the Holy Spirit means life will have no pain or no struggle. Verse 13, Paul answered, what are you doing? Like what in the world? Weeping and breaking my heart. I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. As we walk through these, the, this chapter and a half this morning, there's a couple like foundational life principles about the way of Jesus that I want us to, to bring notice to. And here, here's the first one for, for the note takers in the room. I want you to write this down. Aligning with God's plan does not always mean avoiding life's pain. Aligning with God's plan does not always mean avoiding life's pain. And I desperately believe that the American church needs to be reminded of this in this generation. That there's this like hybrid theology of prosperity gospel and karma. That there's this hybrid of prosperity gospel that says, man, if you really serve Jesus, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Life will be great. Your kids will turn out perfect and you'll be a millionaire. Private jet is coming to you. Just name it and claim it. It's coming, right? That The prosperity gospel. And then karma says, if I do good, I will experience good. And there are principles of that in the scripture. We do reap what we sow and we do believe when we honor the Lord, he returns that in, in good measure. But we've taken that to this exaggerated extreme that somehow means the way of Jesus is a journey that's smooth and happy and it's full of rainbows and kittens and unicorns. And then when we experience regular old life, we're like, what's wrong with me or what's wrong with God? If we don't begin with the reality that says, I am a broken person doing life with broken people in a broken world. So even when I follow Jesus, I might experience pain. And that doesn't mean he failed me or he's disappointed me or he's judging me or I did something wrong. It means I live in a broken world. 
If we hold him to this unrealistic expectation and then we're, we're disappointed in him. And he's like, I never told you that this was going to be magical. We're awaiting paradise. Now, I do believe the way of Jesus has less pain because if we are actually obedient to him, we will experience less consequences for dumb decisions. <laughs> so there is some truth in that. But this fundamental misunderstanding that if I follow God, I'm going to avoid the pain of life. It's just not it's just not the truth of the Bible. The reality is before we get to the end of this chapter, the Apostle Paul is going to be arrested. The reality is that before we get to the end of this chapter, he's going to end up spending 12 days in Jerusalem with trial after trial after trial. He's eventually going to be sent to Caesarea for two years where he just keeps being on trial again and again in front of the, the ruling body, the Sanhedrin. He's going to then be sent to Rome in house arrest for another two years. He's going to get released only for a minute. He's going to get arrested again in Troas, sent back to Rome where he's going to be executed for his faith in Jesus. The reality is the people of God had a moment of surrender where they said, even if hard things are coming, we trust the Lord's will. Even when the news isn't what I want it to be, we will trust the Lord's will. That is a faith that can withstand living in a broken world. God has not failed you and is not disappointed in you when life hurts. And the beauty of this resolve is the next verse. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Doesn't sound pretty dramatic, but that is some bold faith right there. The dude just tied himself up in a belt to give a prophetic word about how bad it was going to be. Right? I've never had anything like that happen. I'm just telling you, I would be changing my flight. Do I keep my miles if I cancel my flight to Jerusalem? They still went. Paul's mission of I'm going to Jerusalem and then to Rome. Sure enough, there he goes. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us. and I think this is interesting, real quick. We went to the house of Manson of Cyprus, an early disciple. So just super quick, I think this is interesting. Uh, Scholars think early disciple is a reference to this dude came to saving faith at the day of Pentecost. How cool is that? He was there on that day that the Holy Spirit was poured out in the launch of the church, right? And again... That beautiful reminder decades later, he's still faithful and he's still serving Jesus. I just think that's cool. Verse 17, when we come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, the, the little brother, half brother of Jesus, who's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Actually, not Peter. All the elders were present, plurality of leaders. After greeting them, he related one by one. The things God had done among the Gentiles. He's literally giving them a nine and a half to ten year overview of what God's been doing through his ministry. Verse 20, when they heard it, they had three responses. Number one, they heard what God was doing to the ministry of the Apostle Paul and they glorified God. It's important to say when we hear about the fruit of the gospel that we glorify God. It's also important to say they did not glorify Paul. They glorified God. Number two, they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who've believed. So the first thing they did was give God glory. And the second thing they did is they gave Paul a report that said the gospel's bearing fruit by the thousands in Jerusalem since you were here. What an encouraging thing. The gospel's continuing to do its generational work. 
And then they said a third thing. They are all zealous for the law. They are still very tied to the traditions of the law. They've received a hybrid gospel of law and grace. And I just got to tell you this morning, there's nothing more dangerous on planet earth than somebody who has half the gospel. I believe in Jesus, but I believe in my performance and your performance as well. Scariest thing in the world. By the way, nothing will split a church quicker than people who believe in both the gospel and the law. Nobody's better at being judgy. As a matter of fact, you've probably met a whole bunch of Baptists who sounded a whole lot like this. They believed they were zealous for the rules. Not so much your rules, their rules only. Only their rules were they zealous for. Okay, moving on. I thought that was funny. They've all been told about you. This is awesome. This is great. I mean, it's terrible. But they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. No, he doesn't. They've been told about you. What? Nothing true, but they've all heard it. So again, you can be faithful to Jesus, obedient to Holy Spirit, and people will say stuff about you that isn't true. I'm shocked. You're telling them to forsake Moses. You're telling them not to circumcise their children. No, he didn't. Or to walk according to our customs. No, he didn't. You know what he was teaching? Don't put faith in your customs. Do whatever you want to do. Circumcise, whatever, or don't, whatever. Just don't put faith in that to give you favor with God and make you a good person. He's not saying don't do it. He's saying don't trust it. And then they're like, what's to be done? They're coming for blood, bro. They will certainly hear that you've come. So then they concoct this plan. They said, we've got these four guys who've made a vow. Probably a hybrid of the, that's a third use of the word hybrid this morning. I don't know why that is interesting. Okay. Um, squirrel. Probably some kind of a concoction of a Nazarite vow. These four men have made a vow, shave their heads, go through purification ritual. And so their plan is, Paul, we want you to join them in that so that you don't look anti-Jewish custom-ish. That word is not in the text. We don't want you to look like you're anti-Jewish custom. So just join with these four dudes. Do the shave your head thing. They even tell him, hey, why don't you pay for it? Go through the, the purification ritual with them. Skip down to verse number 26. Paul said, okay. He took the men. The next day he purified himself along with them. He went to the temple giving notice when the days of purification be fulfilled and offering the offering presented for each one of them. He chose to do this. He was so free, he didn't mind respecting their customs. We talk all the time about being free in Jesus to do whatever we want to do. But do you know that freedom also means we can choose to not do something? We can choose to say, I'm going to respect you in this moment because I want to build a bridge with you. I want to have a relationship with you. First Corinthians chapter number nine, the apostle Paul says, I have become all things to all men so that by all means I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel. He's like, whatever, man, I'll shave my head. Clearly he was a godly man. Shave his head. 
I just wonder if later when he's writing the book of Galatians, he's remembering this moment saying, don't trust in your religious deeds. Or maybe when he's smack dab in the middle of writing the book of Romans and talking about the glories of the gospel, he's like, this is so much better than your little vows. Or maybe whoever it is that wrote the book of Hebrews was thinking about this moment. Here's the principle I'd encourage you to write down. There is freedom. So much freedom in knowing the difference between essentials and non-essentials. There is so much freedom. There is so much freedom in saying, hey, there's actually a really short list of things that we should actually be fighting about. There's a really short list of things worth dying for and worth digging our heels in. And there is a lot of freedom in, in the rest of that list. By the way, that freedom is for people on both sides of that issue. Freedom to do something is also freedom to not do it so that you don't offend a friend. There's so much freedom in knowing what matters and what doesn't. And the reason that's important is because I hear tons of conversations from Christians about really non-essential things. And they're investing a lot of passion and a lot of argument and a lot of debate into things that will not stand the test of eternity. There's so much freedom in saying that that argument just doesn't make the cut. Like, truly, I'm not even going to engage in the debate with it. I have an opinion. I'm just not going to waste it on your obstinance. I can keep it to myself. Why, why are we going to fight about these things? There's so much freedom in the difference between essentials and non-essentials. Skip Heitzig said, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. I love that. A lot of us are really broken about how stuff has gone down in our church experience because we chose the wrong battlefield. Maybe it has less to do with how that church didn't agree with you and more to do with the fact that it wasn't even an essential argument. The Apostle Paul did it, verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. They put hands on him. And, and gathered everybody else to do the same. Next verse says, crying out, men of Israel, help. For, for sake of time, we're going to skip a little bit. They're, they start saying, hey, he's, he's offended the temple. He's made a mess of things. That they, um, they drag him into the temple. Um, look, skip down to verse number 30. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, Word came to the tribune of the cohort. He's like the governor. He's in the exact same position in the city of Jerusalem that Pontius Pilate was in. Those of you who know the gospel story, well, this is, um, this is Pontius Pilate's replacement. And it, word gets to him that all of Jerusalem is in confusion. Real quick, here, here's why that's a big deal. Roman soldiers were executed if the area they were governing broke out into a riot. You really don't want a riot to happen on your watch. This is the, the season of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. So you know what they did if there wasn't peace? They killed you. <laughs> That's not very peaceful. Anyways, so uh, this, this guy's name is Claudius Lydius. We're going to, uh, or Lysias rather, Claudius Lysias. Um, we're going to meet him again like, throughout the rest of the next few chapters. Claudius is trying to find out what in the world is going on. He's really confused. 
Verse 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And saw the, when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Those of you who have more than one child, you've experienced this before. You walked into a room and all of a sudden they went, we were hugging. <laughs> right? This is exactly what just happened. Like I can feel this in my soul. What? I didn't do it. He started it. I didn't know it. Verse 33, when the tribune, the governor, Claudius Lysias, came up and arrested him, he ordered him, this is really important, to be bound with two chains. And almost, almost the rest of Paul's life, he'll be in chains. For, for a minute, he gets released just to get rearrested again. Most of the rest of his life, he will be in chains, either in prison or in house arrest. And then this is interesting. He inquired who he was and what he had done. And that's going to be the theme for the next couple chapters. Someone please tell me what's going on. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And he couldn't learn the facts because the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when they came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because the violence of the crowd, the mob of the people followed crying away with him. Sounds familiar. As Paul was brought into the barracks, we're, we're, we're almost to our last point. This is really important. Hang with this part of the story. He said to Claudius Lysias, may I say something to you? And he said, you know, Greek. Then look at verse 38. Are you not the Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of assassins out into the wilderness? Do you know who that's talking about historically? No, you don't. Neither do I. Nobody does. have no clue what Home Slice is talking about. Literally. No clue. The Apostle Paul said, huh? uh, What? Yet again, this reminder, you can follow Jesus and people have no idea what your story actually is. They thought he was Egyptian. He starts speaking and he's like, do I know Egyptian? I understood what he just said. How do you speak Greek? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia. Which, by the way, is not a little obscure city, dude. And listen to this. I beg you. I beg you. Permit me to speak to the people. He is on the fast track towards Rome now. And this is the last chance he has to speak to his people. Because the rest of the conversations he's going to have is, is going to be with rulers and tribunals and councils and the Sanhedrin. And right now he's with, we read it, Luke wrote it. It's the mob that's trying to kill him. Paul saw it as my people that I have one last chance to speak to. And he begged, can I please speak to the people? He gave him permission. And Paul, standing on the steps, I guess they put him down because they were carrying him a minute ago. Standing on the steps, he motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush... I don't know what a great hush is, but it just sounds cool. Because they were screaming so loud that Claudius Lysias is like, I don't even know what's going on right now. And then all of a sudden it's like, there wasn't even a keyboard or a pad. 
<laughs> and I love this, y'all. He addressed them in the Hebrew language. The whole reason we do faith promise, global missions commitments every year is because we think everybody needs to hear the story of hope in their own language. That's the whole point of this. Like, we think people need to hear the name that possesses hope in their own language. Because hope has a name, but that name sounds different depending on your culture and your context. I love that. He wants people to hear the story of Jesus in their own heart language. We're only going to read the first two verses of the next chapter, and then I'm going to encourage you to to read this on your own, especially if you've not been tracking with us through the book of Acts. I really want you to read through verse 21 uh, sometime this afternoon or tomorrow. Nobody's watching the Pro Bowl this afternoon. You can read this instead of watching real football. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. One second. That word defense doesn't mean he was defensive about his faith. Doesn't mean he was whining or defending. It's, it's the Greek word apologia. It's where we get the word apologetics. It's really the word explanation. It's the same idea from 1 Peter 3.15 to always be ready to give a defense when a person asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. It's this story. It's, it's sharing your story. It's be re- being ready to give an explanation. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, there's again their heart language, Check this out. They became even more quiet. What's more quiet than a great hush? I don't know. They became even more quiet. And then here's what he said. He told them his story. He told them who he was. He told them how he met Jesus. And then he told them, how his life looked different now. He just told his testimony. We've been tracking through it, so we're not going to read it for sake of time this morning. I encourage you to read it on your own. But here's the incredible thing. What we see in here is a foundational life principle, and it's this. There is nothing more powerful than your testimony. Nothing. The Apostle Paul did not get up and say really eloquent things about the law. And the prophets. He just told his story. The reason I think that's so incredible is the Apostle Paul didn't have all the answers in this moment. He just shared his testimony. Good grief, we can do that. Any mob that you encounter, you can say, This is what my life looked like. Then I met Jesus. And this is what my life looks like today. Isn't that awesome? There's nothing more powerful in the whole world than that. He had one opportunity. He had one opportunity left to speak to his people. He begged for an opportunity to just share his testimony. For, For all of us in this room, our mob is not actually trying to kill us. Our mob might just be our coworkers. Our mob might be our loved ones. Our mob might be our next door neighbor. Our mob might be the little ones that we're raising at home. It's just the people that we're doing life with. They do not need a person who has all the answers, has it all figured out, and is a theological genius. They need a person with a story. I was a mess. I met Jesus. Now I'm a forgiven mess. Let's do life together. The end. 
That's what the world needs to hear. The world has had a belly full of people who are zealous for the law and then attach it to Jesus. They just want to hear regular or broken people telling their story. You have a testimony that belongs only to you. Nobody else can tell your story. And you've got your own mob that God has placed you smack dab in the middle of. Because what they need to hear is your story. The story of grace that God is writing in your life is not for you alone. He's not just doing that for you. He's doing that for every single person you'll encounter this afternoon and tomorrow and on a regular ordinary Tuesday. There's nothing more powerful than a testimony. And I just wonder today, who has the Holy Spirit put on your heart that needs to hear a little bit of hope? Who in your orbit... Who in your mob needs to hear a little bit of hope today? I just want to challenge you. Before this week's over, would you just tell them your story? Just simply tell them your story. And when they ask questions that you don't know the answer to, say, I don't know. Let's go find out together. Let's go talk to somebody. Let's go ask the Apostle Paul. I don't know. There's nothing more powerful than your testimony. The story God's writing in your life is not just for you.